We now take up the third case on the docket today, Beeman versus the state of Florida. Counsel? Thank you, Chief Justice Kennedy. May it please the court. Mose Bracey on behalf of Mr. Beeman. I hope to focus on issue four, which itself incorporates issues two and three. With that in mind, this case is about recognizing that in certain circumstances, society's interest in the integrity of judicial proceedings and the fair administration of justice outweigh an individual's interest in autonomy. A capital defendant should not be allowed to obtain death by default to, at the extreme, pursue, quote, state-aided suicide. In that context, this case is an outlier. It is the rare case in which not only the capital defendant invited a death sentence, but also the trial court arbitrarily and unreasonably failed to ensure that the propriety of that sentence could be established according to the law. And I hope to make six main points in support of, of that basic proposition. Um, one, where a capital defendant invites the possibility of a death sentence, the trial court still has to ensure that the propriety of that sentence can be established according to the law. Two, in order to, to establish that propriety, three basic things have to happen. One, the senator has to render a reasoned individualized sentencing determination. Two, this court has to conduct a proportionality review. And three, the death sentence has to be reliable and reasonably consistent. The third main point would be that for those three things to happen, the trial court has to fulfill two critical duties. One, bringing forth all available mitigating evidence, and two, considering all the believable, uncontroverted mitigating evidence. Again, this is where the defendant invites the death sentence. The fourth main point would be that here in this case, the trial court failed to fulfill those two critical duties. And the fifth point would be that even if the trial court's omissions considered individually were not an abuse of discretion, were not arbitrarily, excuse me, arbitrary and unreasonable, considered collectively, those omissions would amount to an arbitrary and unreasonable failure to ensure that the propriety of Mr. Beeman's death sentence could be established according to the law. And the final point would be that the overarching error here is structural. And even if it's not, it's not harmless in the present case. So if I could return to the fourth point, which, which basically would be that here in this case, the trial court failed to fulfill two, the two critical duties. The first would be that the trial court arbitrarily and unreasonably failed to bring forth all available mitigating evidence. And, and I would argue that that happened due to three main omissions. One, the trial court failed to secure a meaningful, comprehensive PSI. And, and, and more specifically, the trial court failed to take the necessary steps to ensure that not only in form, but in substance, the trial, excuse me, the PSI placed before the trial court all available mitigating evidence regarding Mr. Beeman. And I would point out that it was only a six page PSI. It, it was based on limited sources of information. Um, it appears that the probation officer who prepared the PSI reviewed some unidentified DOC records spoke to Mr. Beeman, who again was inviting the death sentence, and then spoke with his mother, who apparently just verified the limited information that Mr. Beeman had given. So this PSI in this case is virtually indistinguishable from, from a PSI in, in any run-of-the-mill felony case. Um, I would also point out that, that even where those limited sources of information were concerned, the PSI failed to include critical information related to Mr. Beeman's background and character that would have been really readily available from, from those sources. And, and I would just point out this. In the sentencing order, 
Two of the mitigating circumstances that were considered were Mr. Beeman's grandma, suffering from grand mal seizures, bipolar disorder, manic depression, and also his experience with childhood sexual abuse. But with respect to each of those circumstances, the trial court essentially discounted the weight given to those and, and, and basically reasoned, well, these were self-reported and not corroborated by the evidence. But, but I believe that if there would have been a meaningful PSI, even based on the limited sources, that, that critical information could have been corroborated. I, I agree with you that the, the, the PSI that I'm looking at here, it's, uh, it is basically the run-of-the-mill PSI that, that probation officers prepare in any other case. It could have been a grand theft case. It could have been a robbery case. Uh, so the, it isn't like there was a particularly special uh, PSI because the death penalty is involved. But I don't, I don't believe that the, uh, if you're looking at the, at the sentencing order and, and the record, it seems like the judge did not rely on the PSI to examine the mitigating circumstances. I mean, he did consider mitigating circumstances, even though they were not included in the PSI. Uh, so your position, I take it, is that the PSI should have delved into the mitigating circumstances? Yes, Justice LaBarga, I do believe that the, the trial court had the duty to, to secure a meaningful comprehensive PSI. Now, I do acknowledge that, that some mitigating evidence was, was brought forth. Um, I do think it was largely through this PSI. Um, the, the only other source really would have been uh, the recorded interviews that the detectives had with Mr. Beeman. Um, but some mitigating evidence was brought forth, and some, not all, but, but, but some of that mitigating evidence that was brought forth was considered and weighed. Even some would be that the trial court here abused its discretion. And, and here's why. If I could, I'd like to sort of make a general point about the standard of review and then, and then try to focus a little bit more on the facts of the case. But in terms of the standard of review, I do believe it's abuse of discretion. And, but even where a trial court has some measure of discretion, I do believe that they are required to conscientiously and reasonably apply the particular rules to the, the relevant rules to the particular facts of the case. And so I do think it's possible that some steps could be taken towards satisfying a legal rule and yet, and yet discretion still be abused. And, and I think that's what happened here because Yes, the trial court, some mitigation was brought forth and some was considered, in particular, I think, from the PSI. Even so, there were very easy things that the trial court could have done that I believe any reasonable person would have adopted the view that the trial court needed to do something more. For instance, secure a psychological report. Um, perhaps ask or, or ask the state, do you have any mitigating evidence in your possession? Um, um, secure some record related to Mr. Beeman's background uh, and character, whether it's medical records, um, things of that nature. I, um, I am not suggesting that there is a particular checklist a trial court has to do in every one of these types of cases, and I'm not suggesting that this court should micromanage the trial court in this case. I would argue that this case is an outlier. It is one of the rare cases where the defendant invited the death penalty and, and the trial court didn't at least secure a psychological report or, or at least secure a meaningful comprehensive PSI. And, and so, again, the two main points I would want to make is that the trial court failed to bring forth all available mitigating evidence um, and then also that it failed to consider all the believable uncontroversial excuse me, uncontroverted mitigating evidence. And, and, and where the second is concerned, 
I would point out that there was certain evidence before the court. Again, I do acknowledge the trial court considered some mitigating evidence, but, but there was some mitigating evidence before the court that, generally speaking, related to Mr. Beeman's mental health and family background, his experience in prison, and his experience with childhood sexual abuse, as well as his son's experience with childhood sexual abuse, at least knowledge of that fact, and, and the impact that those experiences and that knowledge had on this incident at issue here. That evidence was believable and uncontroverted. It was also mitigating. It related to either uh, uh, a circumstance of Mr. I'm sorry, an aspect of Mr. Beeman's character or background, or a circumstance of the offense that reasonably could have served as a basis for imposing a sentence less than death. And then finally, it was not considered by the court in its sentencing order. And, and so, in that respect, this order would be similar to the order in Robinson, in this court's prior decision in Robinson, in that. Like the record in Robinson, the record here indicated that there was some mitigating evidence that received little or no discussion in, in the sentencing order. And so, again, I, I want to emphasize that I'm not suggesting a trial court has to conduct a full-fledged mitigation investigation, but I am arguing that in these circumstances, the trial court had to do something more than what it did here. I'd also like to point out that if the trial court had brought forth all available mitigating evidence, one, that may have caused the court to consider some mitigating circumstances in addition to the handful of mitigating circumstances that it did consider, but it also may have caused the court to give more weight to the circumstances that were considered here. And again, I would circle back to, to the two circumstances related to Mr. Beeman's mental health and to his experience with childhood sexual abuse. Again, the trial court there essentially discounted the weight as I read the sentencing order based on the reasoning that Mr. Beeman had self-reported it and it wasn't corroborated by the record, but the trial court here had the authority to bring forth all available mitigating evidence. And so, I, I, if I could contrast this case with, with one of the cases that was discussed at length in the answer and reply brief, which was Gill versus State. And, and in Gill, I do acknowledge Mr. Gill did not argue, did not bring the same argument that I'm bringing on behalf of Mr. Beeman here. But in Mr. Gill's case, Mr. Gill definitely invited the possibility of the death sentence. And, and in that case, the trial court imposed it, and this court on appeal said it was proportionate. But there's some crucial differences between Gill and this state. In Gill, much more mitigating evidence was brought forth. In that case, there were multiple psychological evaluations. There were actually multiple hearings related to Mr. Gill's physical or mental health. And the trial court had access to prior records uh, as well as medical records and, that, and things of that nature in Mr. Gill's case. So I believe that that's in marked contrast to this case. Uh, again, my basic point is that Mr. Beeman's case would be an outlier where this issue is concerned, that any decision here could, could be limited to the facts of this case, but that this is one, one, one of the rare cases where it's not possible to, to say with certainty that the sentencing decision was, was reasoned and individualized. It's not possible for this court to conduct a proportionality review. Even if this court was to be able to conclude, well, this case is among the most aggravated, I don't believe it could conclude that it's among, excuse me, among the most uh, least mitigated, again, because all the available mitigating evidence was not brought forth. Um, and then finally, I, I don't believe we can say with certainty that the death penalty here was reliable and reasonably consistent, because again, we need where the defendant invites the death sentence, which is relatively rare, in that circumstance, we need the trial court to bring forth all available mitigating evidence. Um, so if I could briefly touch on issue one, um, 
in, 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 in connection with issue one, the trial court arbitrarily and unreasonably failed to ensure that Mr. Beeman's waiver of his right to present mitigating evidence was knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently made. And, and, and I would want to make two kind of crucial points in support of, of that basic proposition. One, I don't believe the trial court appreciated that the waiver had to be knowing voluntarily and intelligently made. First of all, the trial court did not articulate that appreciation. Second of all, in contrast to the, to the trial court's actions in connection with Mr. Beeman's waiver of things such as his right to a lawyer, um, to a second phase jury, to various first phase rights that he would have had um, if he had not pled guilty to first degree murder, in connection with those waivers, there was an extended colloquy. And at the end of the colloquy, the trial court explicitly found that this respective waiver was knowing voluntarily and intelligently made. In contrast, where the waiver of mitigation was concerned, it was a brief colloquy and there was no mention at that time of whether the waiver was knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently made. The second point I would want to make is that even if the trial court appreciated that the waiver had to be knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently made, it basically it failed to take reasonable, conscientious steps to ensure that Mr. Beeman's waiver was knowingly and intelligent. In particular, it failed to tell him what mitigating evidence was and at the time that he, that he waived this right. And, and so without understanding what mitigating evidence was, what he was giving up, I would argue that he was unable to understand the, the sufficiently the value of the right to present mitigation and the significance of waiving it. Um, and I would point out that in contrast to in DeRocher, one of this court's prior decisions in which the waiver was found to be knowing, voluntary, and intelligent. In that case, the trial court um, swore Mr. DeRocher in and closely questioned him on two days with respect to what he was giving up. Here, nothing like that happened. Um, and so I would argue that in connection with issue one, Mr. Beeman's waiver was not knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently made. If there are no further questions, I would uh, reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. May it please the court, Janine Robinson on behalf of the state of Florida. I'd like to begin where appellate counsel or appellant's counsel left off that the waiver was not knowing intelligent or voluntary. The record completely refutes that. Going back to Mr. Beeman's 2005 conviction uh, for murder for which he was sentenced to life plus 15 years, the sentencing document, which is in the record, specifically states that Mr. Beeman at that, in 2005 was given the opportunity to present mitigating evidence against the uh, possible sentence. So his knowledge of what mitigation was goes back to 2005. Let's move up to the current case that we're, we're in today. Beginning in May of 2018, Mr. Beeman was before the court multiple times, and most importantly, his defense counsel, who he released, was the public defender of the, uh, of the circuit at the time, and he said to the court on two different occasions, both in August and in uh, November prior to the trial, the penalty phase trial, that counsel exhaustively and, ex and extensively explained mitigation to Mr. Beeman, along with the aggravators, explain the whole process, explain the rights he was giving up, explain the Spencer hearing. So the record is, is replete, and, and I believe we block quoted it in, uh, in my answer brief, to explain that defense counsel educated their client before he released, the, released them as defense counsel. The court also 
specifically and, and deliberately and in detail talked to Mr. Beeman about his rights going back again to May of 2018 through his plea waiver. And there is, there is nothing to indicate that Mr. Beeman did not understand what he was waiving or what mitigation was. As a matter of fact, moving forward to, I believe it was that the uh, January 2019 um, sentencing hearing, he went through the mitigating factors that the court was acknowledging and giving weight to, that abuse, everybody suffers abuse at some time in their life. Um, he, he rationalized each and every one, and so he understood the purpose of mitigation as it affected his potential death sentence. Now going back to, um, and what Justice Labarga, what you commented on, that the PSI was sort of run of the mill. The record in this case is extremely short, and the records for Mr. Beeman, they are what they are. Appellate counsel acknowledged that the in, the inspector, I mean, the investigator for the PSI reviewed records, and we know through Robertson there's no requirement of specific records being obtained. They, most of the things were verified by Beeman's mother, including his, his past uh, history of bipolar disorder and seizures, which the court acknowledged as mitigators. Um, and so going through all of those, he, the judge took into account the, uh, the PSI. He affirmatively accepted the state's representation of mitigation. Council, I believe, said that the state didn't put forward mitigation. Well, yes, they did, and they did it on the record. The judge took a lot of that into account, giving, I believe it was seven mitigators that he found and gave weight to. And one of them, I believe it was mitigator number two, where he lumped in the seizures, the bipolar disorder, and the manic depressive disorder, was, was a conglomerate of arguably several different mitigating factors. Let's see. Um, and as far as distinguishing Gill, the issue in Gill was there, there were genuine psychological problems and issues with Gill. There is no evidence in this record that Mr. Beeman had any inkling of psychological problems. There was no question of his competency. He was articulate. He was attentive. He, even during the uh, penalty phase trial, he had quite frankly, very competent cross-examination questions and certain questions for the court. So the record does not at all discuss where any psychological report would have been, would have been mandated or abuse of discretion by the judge not to require one. And with that, the state asks that uh, you affirm this conviction and sentence unless there are any other questions. Thank you. If I could just quickly make a, a few points with respect to each issue. In terms of the waiver, um, I believe that I would acknowledge that Mr. Beeman's earlier lawyer, um, as well as the trial court, appeared to have explained the second phase trial process to Mr. Beeman prior to his waiver of mitigation. Um, but I would argue that that's, that is different from understanding what mitigating evidence actually is. From, from understanding that mitigating evidence is, is literally anything that may indicate uh, a sentence of less than death w w would be appropriate. From understanding that mitigating evidence is not limited to the facts of a crime. Um, I also would emphasize with respect to the waiver that Mr. Beeman waived his right to present mitigating evidence at a November 
hearing. The trial and, and the Spencer hearing and so forth were not until December, January. I think it's that critical point in time that we need to focus on and question whether Mr. Beeman understood what mitigating evidence was at that time. With respect to issue four, um, I would just want to point out and, and reemphasize that that where a capital defendant invites the possibility of the death sentence, the trial court does have a responsibility to look out for society's interest in the integrity of the judicial proceedings and the fair administration of justice. Um, I would also note that, yes, at, at the closing arguments during the second phase, the, the state did recommend that the trial court consider a handful of mitigating circumstances. But I think that is different from the trial court requiring the state to place in the record all, all evidence of a mitigating nature that's in the state's possession. Here, I think that any reasonable person would have at least asked the state if they had any such evidence in, in their possession. And then finally, I would point out that there were significant uh, psychological concerns in Gill. I would argue that there were psychological concerns here, but because there was no psychological evaluation done, because all of the mitigating evidence was not brought forth, we don't understand, know with confidence how much psychological issues may have been present in this case. And again, I would just end by emphasizing that a capital defendant should not be allowed to effectively pursue state-aided suicide. And I would ask this court to reverse. Thank you. All right, we thank you both for your arguments.